I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tonight. 1 Corinthians 13. Well, you know what they say. All good things must come to an end. And so with this message, whether it's good or not, we're going to close our series on the home that we have been looking at over the last several months. Um, I hope that that this series has been a challenge to you in your lives. I hope that the Lord has used it in your heart. Um, something we have to admit is that we all have areas in, this, um, in our homes that we can grow in order to reflect God in a greater way and then in order to raise the next generation to serve the Lord as well. Um, and as I said, I, I think that one of the, the things here that's maybe an unspoken or unstated um, way that this applies is that even if you, maybe you don't have children in your home, um, so some of the things we've talked about, you say, well, maybe that doesn't directly apply to me, but you are part of a church body where there are lots of kids. And so you hear what, what Christian parents are trying to instill or should be trying to instill in their children, and you can help support and pray for them in those ways as well. One author said it this way, and I had read this this week, and I just, I just thought this was an amazing way of thinking about it. He said that the lifeblood of Christianity is self-sacrifice. The lifeblood of Christianity is self-sacrifice. And indeed, Jesus' self-sacrifice is exactly what led him to shed his blood on the cross for our sin. His sacrifice gives us not only eternity, but new life that we can live in him. And we can live for him, and we can live for his glory. And that self-sacrifice is motivated by a godly, self-sacrificial love. So tonight, in 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to look here in a minute at the first seven verses, and we're going to talk about how we can reflect God's love in our home lives and look at this picture of godly love in our homes. Because here in 1 Corinthians 13, the self-sacrificial love of God is described in beautiful detail. But before we do that, let me give you a little bit of background where we're coming from when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with what we could say is a myriad of problems within the church in the area of Corinth. The people there, they had a great fascination with their sinful culture, with the practices of that culture, and the methods of that culture, and that, by nature then, has found its way into the church at Corinth. I mean, their church tolerated some things that would repulse people who aren't Christians, let alone the things that should repulse a growing disciple. And then they also placed an undue influence on certain spiritual gifts that God had given to them as a church. And so what they would do then is they would take those gifts and they would use them for their own means and their own self-exaltation. And so throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with one issue after another, seeking to help the saints there uh, see their sin and embrace the life that God has called, him to, has called them to in himself. And so probably rightfully so, one high school teacher has described the theme of 1 Corinthians as spanking the saints because he's trying to help correct the things that are going on there. And so near the end of, of this letter in 1 Corinthians, we find this chapter on love. 
And because it is such an exhaustive description, how many of you have read 1 Corinthians 13 before? Okay, how many of you have been to a wedding where they read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? Because it's such this exhaustive um, description of love, this chapter is prominently featured at weddings, it's expounded on in sermons, it's memorized by many. I remember as a child growing up memorizing 1 Corinthians 13. But I, as always, want to be careful that we don't divorce this, this text from its immediate context within the book of 1 Corinthians. What this is meant to do in 1 Corinthians 13, it's meant to combat the immediate problems in Corinth, and, the, and its primary applications fall in line with the book of, of 1 Corinthians as a whole, first and foremost, because if you are filled with this type of love for God, for others, then the things that are going on in Corinth shouldn't be, that shouldn't be going on wouldn't be, right? If we lived the way God called us to live, we loved the way God called us to love. However, that doesn't mean that there aren't other applications of these principles and descriptions to be made. In fact, while this chapter is primarily written in the context of the problems of Corinth, it is at the same time one of the greatest descriptions of self-sacrificial love that we find in Scripture. When you read in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, the very first of nine that's mentioned in that verse. It's the same type of love there as is talked about here. When, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world, that's the exact same word that Paul is talking about here. It's agape love. It's self-sacrificial love. And so we'll keep the primary application in mind tonight for Paul and his readers, but we're also going to look at this type of love that needs to rule our lives, and it should be ruling our homes. Because we normally, I mean, you would think with a a natural or a normal, whatever that looks like, healthy family, you, you would expect there to be love in a home, right? In a healthy home. But what does that love look like? Because you and I don't get to define that. God gets to define that. And you and I don't get to say, you know, what I do and don't do because of this love. God says those things. And what we see here is, is godly, self-sacrificial love shines like a multifaceted jewel, filling our homes and lives with the reflection of our Savior. What you're going to see in this, in this chapter is love is an action word. Love results in things in our lives. And really, as you, as you turn, we're just going to look at uh, about half the chapter tonight. Um, and as you, as you look at it, it's almost like you're taking this, I, I put it there in the statement, it's almost like you're taking this jewel and you're turning it, right? You ever, you ever held a, a jewel? I mean, it wouldn't be that big, right? It'd be like a little a diamond or something like that, or looked at it uh, under a microscope or in a video or something, you see when you turn that, it has facets, right? And it catches the light. And that's exactly what this chapter describes, that the love of God is this multifaceted thing, this multifaceted jewel that, that through us, as we show the love of God, with his help, we shine the light of the gospel in our homes and all we come in contact with. So let's look at these things tonight. We're not going to read the whole text ahead of time. We'll read it as we go through tonight and we look at these things so what you see as Paul jumps into 1 Corinthians here, chapter 13, is, is in the first three verses, you come up with this equation. Anything minus love equals nothing. And if you want to write that down in a mathematical 
formula, you go right ahead and do that, okay? Anything minus love, a heart, right, equals, and you put a circle with a slash, right? Anything minus love equals nothing. That's exactly what Paul says here in these first three verses. He says in verse 1 that without love, there is worthless eloquence. Paul says in verse thir- chapter 13, verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. So one of the things you need to understand to help you understand the context of this is that, that the area of Corinth, and therefore the church at Corinth, prized great orators. They were a people beholden to, to great speech. They were also a church that was consumed with the sign gift that God gave to the early church of speaking in tongues. And they placed unnecessary emphasis upon that gift, viewing it as some type of self-exalting gift. And and Paul's going to eventually address the temporal nature of such a gift and how it's to be exercised there in the church appropriately. But here, through hyperbole, he's emphasizing the need for love above all else. So what Paul gives you here in verse 1 is a hyperbolic situation. It's imaginary, okay? So even Paul says, imagine a situation where he himself could speak in the highest form of communication. What you have in verse 1, that that word translated tongues, you could very easily uh, and, and, and justifiably translate that languages to perhaps help us understand better the idea of what Paul is saying here. That though I could speak with the languages of men and of angels. Paul says, imagine, if you would, that he could speak in all the languages ever known. All of mankind's languages. And then he says, and of angels. Now, that does not necessarily indicate that there's some unknown language of the angels, as some have used this text to to prove. Because, and I say that primarily because throughout Scripture, when angels come down and speak, do you know what they speak, what language they speak? Whatever language those people are speaking, right? Whether it be Hebrew or Greek or whatever, right? They speak to us in these languages that we know. So Paul is, is using here hyperbole to paint a picture that, that imagine, in any imaginable tongue, any wing you could imagine, I could speak eloquently in those things. I mean, wouldn't that be an incredible gift? And wouldn't that be an incredible tool that one can even argue you could use it for the gospel? I mean, what elegance, what class, I mean, what a treat. And in the immediate context, he would be very favorably viewed by the people who were in Corinth. Look at this guy. Look all the ways that he could speak. Yet Paul says that such a gift is worthless if it is not used with the love of God. In fact, instead of a beautiful, eloquent language, such a gift used without love would be like a noisy, dissonant gong or cymbal crash. We have to understand language is a gift from God. With it, we communicate with other people. With the advances of technology, we have the means and methods to communicate with people all over the world, whether they are immediately available or not. Um, Probably two to three times a week on my phone, I get messages from a missionary friend of mine, and he's all the way on the other side of the world in Spain. I mean, that's kind of a cool thing that we have these, this ability to communicate with people uh, all over the world. But if we do not use our gift of communication in love, our communication is absolutely worthless. 
You may be saying all the right things, but if you say it without love, the power of what you say is gone. You may be pouring out all the truth someone needs to hear, but if you give it without love, it does not connect. And so we should study and practice good speech. We should learn how to effectively communicate with our families and with others. But we must also temper our communication with the love of God. And if you let love run your communications, then those interactions that you have with people in your own home and people around you, they'll take on a delightful difference because you're tempering everything with the love of God. The self-sacrificial love. So Paul says, without love, there is worthless eloquence. But secondly, he says in verse 2, without love, there are worthless gifts. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So in verse 2, Paul continues talking about gifts that God may give to him and others who lived during this time. And first, he speaks of having the gift of prophecy. Now, Paul was most certainly one who was gifted with what we call the gift of prophecy because, number one, he received direct revelation from God and he recorded those things. The the very things you're reading here are things that Paul received directly from God and recorded for us. They are preserved for us today in these letters such as to the Corinthians. But, you know, when we talk about the gift of prophecy, do you realize there's a, there is a, an, a side and an application of the gift of prophecy that actually does continue on in the church today? Because what did a prophet do? He declared the word of God. Prophets came and said what? Thus says the Lord. And so understand that there is still this side of, we don't have, now we don't have revelation coming to people today, okay? God doesn't speak to us that way anymore. He speaks through his word. However, there are still heralds of the gospel. There are heralds of the word of God giving what God says. And so you should be hearing from, the, from, from whoever stands in the pulpit of your local church the words of God. Why? Not because the message is from the Bible, God's revealed word. And if someone stands up and says, well, I think, then that's not right, right? What we need to say is, God says. This is what the word of God says. One who doesn't preach the word of God isn't doing what God has commanded to be done in the church. So Paul was used mightily by God, and many others over the years have been blessed with opportunities and gifts to proclaim God's word. But If this isn't done in the love of God, what does Paul say? It's worthless. We have to give these things with the love of God. Because guess what? Such a gift can and has been quite often used to build up oneself. I mean, how many people have you known or seen and observed that they, 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 they peddle themselves off as one who preaches the word of God, but all they're doing is using it to build up their own self? Second, Paul talks about in this verse the gift, a gift of knowledge. Paul uses the term here, if you understood, all mysteries and knowledge. Here he's speaking of the ultimate of all human understanding. Knowledge is a love for many. Pursuing 
an, under, an understanding of facts is the pride of our world. And Paul here speaks of a knowledge that, that goes even beyond that, speaking of spiritual knowledge as well when he talks about mysteries. And again, this would be very appealing to the Corinthian crowd because imagine that you were hearing from one who understood all mysteries and had all knowledge. I mean, humanly speaking, that's a very prestigious thing. Listen to this guy and everything he knows about God and the things that God has said to him. Yet again, Paul makes it clear, even if he could do those things without love, that knowledge is worthless. We can know all sorts of things about God and God's word. But if we do not truly know God, we will not have his love and our factual knowledge of him is useless. We need to know God's love so that we may minister in God's love to others. And then lastly in this verse, Paul talks about a gift of faith. Now when Paul says here at the end of verse 2, he says, um, and though I have all faith so, that I could, faith so that I could remove mountains. Paul's not talking here of saving faith, but he's in talking instead about confidence and expectancy in the things of God. How many of you have ever known someone who just exercised incredible faith in God and, and said, I'm pr- I've been praying about that, and God does these amazing, it seems like God always does an amazing thing for that person. You ever known anybody like that? I've known a couple of those in my life where it's just like, they just say, yeah, I've been praying about that for a long time. And you just look at it like, I don't know that I would have the faith to even pray about that, right? You know, we just, because in our own sin, in our flesh, right, we kind of, we kind of shove that off. Like, well, that'll never happen, right? And Paul uses here, um, he actually uses the same hyperbole that Jesus uses. Do you remember uh, when Jesus told his disciples that if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could save this mountain to move and it would move, Right? Was Jesus saying that his disciples were really going to go out and move mountains? No, what he's illustrating is that, that, that we need to have faith in God to do great and mighty things. But Paul says even if he had such great faith, it was so great and unalloyed that he could do something incredible like move a mountain without love, that faith is worthless. It doesn't matter what is accomplished if you have no love for God It's worthless. And let me give you an illustration of that. A guy we've talked about here before. His name is Jonah. Jonah was not afraid of failing his mission. Do you know what Jonah was afraid of? He was afraid of succeeding. You understand that, right? He was afraid that if I go to Nineveh, they're going to repent and God's not going to judge them. I mean, literally, that's the thought process behind Jonah. And so here goes Jonah you know, trying to run away from God, and eventually God gets a hold of his heart and he relents, or it seems that God got a hold of his heart. And, he, but, and when he went back to Nineveh, like God wanted him to do, there's a great revival that breaks out in the city, right? Reformation, people come, they repent of their sin, and then Jonah gets angry at God. Why? Because God is gracious towards those people. What did Jonah lack? Jonah lacked true love for people created in the image of God. And so Jonah's preaching brought about great things because God still uses broken people, right? But Jonah's personal efforts to that end were absolutely worthless because because of his lack of love. And then lastly, in these first couple of verses, three verses, Paul says that when anything minus love equals nothing, that there is a worthless sacrifice. 
He says, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. So now Paul puts a capstone on this section, speaking of a great self-sacrifice. Now, the love that Paul admonishes us to in this chapter, the love of God, is the, is the Greek word agape, which talks of self-sacrificial love that chooses to love other people. And here, Paul takes that self-sacrifice to another level. He says, look at all these great acts of service that I could perhaps do. He speaks of giving away everything he has to help other people. I mean, is that not the ultimate act of benevolence? Can you imagine ridding yourself of every worldly possession you have just to help other people? He speaks of martyrdom, giving himself and his life for the cause of Christ. He says, though I give my body to be burned. Now, It wasn't the common method of execution in Paul's day, but if you know anything about the history of Christianity, you know that that in the coming years, Christians will be burned alive at the stake for the cause of Christ. And what an incredible incredible testimony we have of those people who did that. Yet even these ultimate acts of self-service can in themselves be self-centered. And instead of giving everything for the Lord and others in love, we can do it for self-promotion. You understand that there are so many who give in a way that they know they'll be seen giving. And so many sacrifice so openly, you wonder, well, what kind of sacrifice is it really if you're just making sure everybody sees it? Without love, such acts of even the greatest sacrifice don't mean anything because it's not about the actions that you take. It's about the heart that you have behind the actions. It has to start with the heart motivated by love for God and others. And only then can we serve God successfully. So anything minus love equals nothing. And in your family, it is the same. Men, your acts of service to your family are absolutely necessary. If you go out to work, you spend countless hours giving much of your best in life in that job. Why? So that you can provide for the people you care for. But if you do not do that with a proper love for God and others, it's meaningless, it's worthless. You're going to wake up one day to an empty house, a wife you don't even seem to know, and a life full of emptiness because you did not cultivate agape love while you were carrying out these actions towards them. Ladies, your self-sacrificial lifestyle is beyond compare. The way that, that mothers feed and clothe and personally invest in every single person of their household is an absolutely incredible thing. But without godly love, it's worthless. Because if we serve in that way without godly love, those people that you sacrifice so much for, they're not blessed. You know what they're doing? They're racking up a debt that they're never going to be able to pay. Why? Because we don't really do it in love. We do it because we have to or because it's what's expected. We need this godly love. 
hey, kids, your obedience to your, and honor towards your parents and working together with your siblings, those are wonderful things. But if it's not motivated by godly, self-sacrificial love, it's worthless. It's no more than just going through these worthless routines of, well, let's just get it along, and then we'll get out of the house, and it'll all be over, we can do our own thing. And I'm just going to tell you right now, that's a horrible way to live. Any of those ways is a horrible way to live. Instead, we're to live with active agape love. It's the love that's seen perfectly in Jesus that God has given to us through his son. It's a love that's extremely involved and has very, so many practical characteristics. And so what you have in the next four verses, in our second point and our last point tonight, are the facets of this jewel of godly love that we need to seek to polish with God's help. And so my goal is um, to not spend a ton of time on each one of these, okay, because there's like 15 or 16 of these, all right? I know you get really scared when I say I have 15 points, okay? Um, But we want to take just a little look at each one of these to understand what they are. And understand that that each one of these, these characteristics of godly love is what needs to be true in our lives if we are going to be showing that love to other people. Because remember, love is an action word, right? It's not just something we say to say, oh, yeah, I love you, right? Because it just continues on and continue on with life. But we show it by what we do and who we are. And so God, in his love, cultivates this in our hearts as we follow him. So let's look at these things, and we'll, we'll see them as we go, Okay. So the first one Paul says in verse 4, love suffers long, or we could say love is patient. Literally here, and you, you heard it said suffers long there in the New King James translation, this word speaks of being long-tempered. And in the New Testament, when we talk about suffering long, we talk about patience, we talk about this specific word, almost exclusively, okay, with very, very few exceptions, this word is used to talk about an attitude towards people, not events or circumstances, okay? And the idea here is that love doesn't retaliate. And just as you would expect with agape, as with agape love, okay, um, agape love is something that's, that's only ever talked about as seen in people who follow Christ, being patient and long-suffering is something that the Bible only speaks of that's, that's seen in people who are followers of Christ. This is, an, a, this is what an expectation of Christians. But you're not going to find this type of thing talked about in, in other areas of this time. Because the world then and the world now, they have a much, very, a very, a much different way of doing things. What does the world tell us? Well, it tells us that we're told to give people, hey, just give them so much line in life, and then that's it, right? We're told to seek our own welfare above all else, but that's not godly love. And we have to understand that this is perfectly illustrated in God towards us. I read this week of, um, I don't remember the guy's name, but he was some prominent atheist from years past. And he would give these talks on atheism, and he would say, now I'm going to stop talking for five minutes, and if I'm wrong, I expect God to strike me dead in the next five minutes. And then, of course, 
He doesn't just get struck dead. So no, he would do. You say, well, that proves it, right? There's no God. No, you know what that proves? That God is patient and long-suffering. Because how many of us would be sitting here tonight if God wasn't a patient God? None of us. His patience in love prevents us from premature destruction. And though God always punishes sin, he is incredibly patient, continuing to call us and draw us to himself. So we must exercise this same patience with others in our lives. And our homes are the primary, yet admittedly the most difficult places to do this, right? But those in our homes should be the greatest recipients of our patience in love. And I know that sometimes, many times, the people you live with are the people who try your patience the most, right? I don't see any moms saying amen, but okay. But this, this is where this comes in. Love is patient. Then Paul continues, love suffers long and is kind. Kindness goes hand in hand with patience. As one author described it, kindness is active goodwill. It's not only desiring the welfare of others, okay, but it is then also working for that welfare to become a reality. I desire good things for you, and I'm going to work to help make those good things happen in your life. I'm going to show you kindness. Who has worked tirelessly for the goodness of his creation? No one but God himself, right? He has given us all things, and when the creation rebelled, what did God do? He sent his son to redeem us from our sins. In a world full of sin, we have unlimited opportunities to show kindness to other people. In our homes, every day, we have the same opportunities to show kindness towards others. Kindness is a natural outpouring of Christian love. Working for the welfare of other people should be seen in each person of a Christian household. Moms and dads, husbands and wives, moms and dads, brothers and sisters, children and parents, all working together for the goodness and the welfare of other people because of the kindness of God in our hearts. Then Paul continues, love does not envy. We can say it is not jealous. Now, eight of the descriptions, we're about to hit this big section here, eight of the descriptions of, of godly love, the characteristics here, are presented in the negative, so it is not this. But these are just as helpful as the positive because we want to see what it is in our lives that can combat us showing godly love, right? So if it's not this, we need to be careful to look out for this because that's fighting against the love of God in our lives. So the first one here, Paul says, of these is that it is not jealous. So sinful jealousy and godly love are mutually exclusive ideas. And sinful jealousy comes in a couple different forms. In the first, most basic form, it shows up in this way. I want what they have, right? I mean, we've probably seen that picture of jealousy or thought about that a lot, right? That can be a possession someone has, a position, a relationship, the seeming harmony and peace of mind, a financial position. I mean, you name it, right? We can look at somebody else and say, I want what they have. And in its basis form, 
And man, I wish I had that. And I'm not talking about in a healthy way because if I can just say this as an aside, I think, you know, it's one thing to look at someone and say, I, I want to follow Christ like they do. I want to model, I want to be a disciple like that person, right? That's not jealousy. That's, that's looking towards someone for an example. This is instead look in a, looking at life in an entirely selfish way and say, I want what other people have, right? So in its basis form, jealousy says, I want what they have. Now, there's a second part of jealousy. I, maybe you call it the evolved form of this jealousy, and, this, and that is this. I wish they didn't have that. That's a whole different level of jealousy. Because now, not only do we desire what someone else has, now we wish, well, they didn't, that they didn't have it at all. And that's not love. That's malicious intent. And jealousy is not a harmless sin. I'm just going to tell you right now, if you are a jealous person, you will have no lack of people to be jealous of in your life. Because there is always someone who has something better than you, no matter what, where it is. And so what we do with that understanding is an important thing. Because scripture is full of people who didn't have what other people had, and it ended up leading them into further sin and costing them dearly when they began to pursue it. Think of just some of these people. Eve, who Satan tempted to be jealous of God, Right? And we all know where that led. We're all sitting here tonight going, yep, we know where that one led, right? Cain, who was jealous of his brother, who brought an offering to God, and that led to murder. Or how about Joseph, Joseph's brothers, who were jealous of the way his father treated him, and that led him into selling him into slavery, right? And lying about his supposed death. You can keep going through the scriptures to see these things. But understand that biblical love instead rejoices in what other people are able to enjoy in God's blessings. So love is not jealous. Godly love is not jealous. Love does not parade itself. It is not boastful. The truth is, we have to understand this, that God blesses us all different ways. That is just a fact of life, right? Some of us are better at certain things. Some of us are um, blessed um, um, physically in certain ways that, that other people are not. Some people enjoy this in life or do that in life or have had success in this or that. I mean, God, God gives us all different areas of blessing in our lives. And we may not all enjoy even the same level of blessing, but God will bless us at some point in some way. And when he does, how we react to that says a lot about our love. Because true biblical love is a love that's not full of boasting. I love the way that Paul says, or that, that, that the New King James says it here, does not parade itself. Our lives are not parades of our individual accomplishments and achievements. Bragging and boasting is, is in a lot of ways, the opposite sin of, of what jealousy is. Now, what are we trying to do? We're trying to make other people jealous of me. But love is instead thankful for what God gives, enjoys the blessings of God, and isn't consumed with showing it off to everyone else. Paul continues, is not puffed up, or we could say it is not arrogant. Pride is a nasty enemy which is ever close at hand. 
True godly love does not tolerate pride in our lives. Everything we have, everything we enjoy, and everything we're able to do is because of God's grace in our lives. And so there's no reason for us to look around and say, yep, I'm the reason I am where I am today. We're only where we are today because of God. And pride leads instead to a closing of our hearts towards other people. But love opens our hearts with compassion. Paul then continues, does not, uh, he said, uh, does not pray itself, is not puffed up, does not, next one, behave rudely. It is not rude. Godly love, very practically, affects our behavior towards other people. And rude, unbecoming behavior out of, out of hearts that are not ruled by godly love is unacceptable. How does this look in our lives? Well, disrespect towards parents and others who are older than us or in positions of authority. Carelessness in our actions towards those people and, and, or, or overbearing, crude behavior. All of these things show a lack of love towards other people. And rudeness stems from a lack of consistent love, and it has effects on the gospel. Can I just ask you a personal favor? If you're going to go down to the restaurant and be rude to the people who serve and rude to this, please don't leave a track with the church name on it. Okay? That's not how we show the love of Christ. You can hurt opportunities to share Christ with others and even turn people completely off to the gospel because of your rude attitude and your demeanor in life. Love shows respect and graciousness towards all people. Why? Because God loves them. So we should too. And our homes should be places where this type of rude behavior is not tolerated. I tell you, I mean, that's, that's a struggle, right? Especially if you have kids in your house, there's, there's a lot of times you have to say, hey, that's not how we speak to your brother, your sister, to your mom, your dad. That's not how we speak to each other. Because that's rude. That's not loving. Our church body should be a place where deferral and grace is shown to all people. And our, our demeanor and love should be, should, should be of a gracious deportment wherever we are. So does not is not rude. Then Paul says it is not self-seeking, does not seek its own. Fallen human nature wants one thing, my own way. Look at any group of toddlers and you'll see that, right? We have a two and a half year old in our house. Do you know whose way she wants? Her way. She doesn't like that, right? I just heard a story today of something that happened at the end of the nursery time when, when she was told to clean up, and she didn't really want to clean up. And so the teacher reminded her, hey, we're going to obey, right? You get a bunch of group of toddlers together and pass out hammers, and it doesn't end very well. They all want, they want, want what they want. They want it right now and without delay. And the idea is, if you get in my way, I'll take you out and get what I want. In our world lives in such a way where everyone seeks only their own good at all times. That's the primary way that our world is wired. 
There's no looking out for others. There's only looking out for me and my needs. And frankly, many Christians live the same way. Even Christian hopes are filled with people trying to take care of themselves and their desires before worrying about anyone else. Well, as long as I get what I want, then I'll be, you know, y'all, we can sort the rest out. And that does nothing but cause strife and contention. Because here's the deal. When, when all we ever do is look after ourselves, we drive everybody else away from us. Nobody likes to spend time with someone who only looks out for themselves. If that's all we ever do, it's like, well, I'm just going to go do something else because this isn't fun. In a small English village, it is said there's a tombstone that reads, Here lies a miser who lived for himself and cared for nothing but gathering wealth. Now where he is or how he fares, nobody knows and nobody cares. That's the end of a life that's lived in selfishness. A life lived in the love of God, looking after the needs and interests of others, is an extremely fulfilling and rewarding life indeed. Love is not self-seeking. Paul says then, is not provoked. So love is, true godly love is not provoked. Godly love, what this means here is it guards against outbursts of anger and irritation. Now, this is not speaking against being rightly angered by sin. If you see the sinful state of our world, and you see the things getting worse and worse, and you get angered because you see sin, not angry at the people, right? But like, I just can't, you get frustrated by the sin of the, of the world. There is a righteous indignation there, right? I mean, we see that illustrated in the life of Christ. But this is speaking about getting personally offended and angered with other people. Love, instead, is not full of self-defense and retaliation. So this means that we do not carry an attitude with us of fighting for our own personal rights or seek to get our own way. And so we have to ask ourselves this question. How can we look at our family members in the eye and say, I love you, if we continually respond to them in anger? We don't love them. We love us. And we love them when they bow down to our wants and desires or they succumb to our manipulations. Oh, I love you. No, you just love what I got, what I did for you. There's a difference. Love is not provoked to these things. And that's not agape love. That's self-love. But instead, godly love, again, seeks the goodness of others and thinks not of self in wrongdoings throughout our lives. Then Paul says, thinks no evil. Uh, Perhaps a better way to say this is it doesn't keep score. And this is what I mean by this. Um, You could could say this, you could translate this this phrase a couple different ways. You could translate thinks no evil as is not resentful or does not keep an account of a wrong suffered. So, So the wording behind this phrase is a bookkeeping term that talks of, about figuring an entry on a ledger. You know, if you're going to keep a book, you have to keep a ledger, right? You have to, I know we do it on Excel spreadsheets or wherever else we do it now, but, you know, you have this place where you put in the, the accounts, right, of people that owe this or that or they paid this or they paid that. And that's an appropriate rec- for reconciling financial debts, but it's the opposite of what godly love does. Love forgives wrongdoings. It doesn't keep track of these things, but it offers continual reconciliation. 
Someone said it this way, love does not forgive and forget, but rather love remembers and still forgives. And if you want to be an unhappy person, go ahead and keep your record of wrongs that are done against you, whether it be a physical or mental. If you want to live a home life full of strife, then mark things down that you feel are wrong and run them over in your mind and hash them out time and again. Listen, we need to deal with sin and with wrong, but it must be dealt with. And dealt with in a right and biblical manner, and then we move on with life because that's what love does. And no, I understand that just talking about it doesn't excuse someone who is guilty of sin. That person needs to to seek forgiveness and make it right, but we can still treat them with grace and with love. When the disciples came to, to Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, asked him about forgiveness, right? Peter said, how often do I have to forgive my brother, right? Till seven, to, 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 to seven, up to seven times. And Jesus said, I say unto you seven, but 70 times seven. Could be 77 or it could be 490. The, the point was this. Jesus said to Peter, don't keep count, just forgive. Show them the love of Christ. And then he went in to give that, illust- that parable. Then Paul says, does not rejoice in iniquity. Love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. True godly love finds no joy in sin. This comes from a supreme love for God. So if I love God above all else, you know what that that means? That means I'm going to naturally hate what God hates. And what does God hate? He hates, most of all, he hates sin. Because it is the antithesis of everything that God is. So, you know what we don't do? We don't brag about our sinful acts. We don't tolerate sinful thoughts. We don't gossip about other people's sin. And I think that perhaps in our culture, in the day and age specifically that we live, that one of the things we must be on most guard against is that we do not fill our minds with entertainment that is filled so full of that which God hates. I think that we do ourselves a disservice and rejoice in iniquity when we take into our hearts and minds this entertainment that, exalt, that the world gives us that's so full of, of awful, vile things. And so I would encourage you to be judicious about what types of entertainment you in your own life lend yourself towards. And parents, can I just say it this way? If you won't sit down and watch it, don't let your kids sit down and watch it without you. If you say, well, I don't think I'd watch that, then they have no business sitting down and watching that. And you need to know where your kids are spending time on the internet. And you need to see what it is they're watching. And, it, and I would just say from one parent to another, if you ever say to your kid, hey, what are you watching? They say, nothing. You say, that's not an answer. What are you watching? We're going to watch it together. Why? Because we, you would, we have to go through every length we can go to to protect the minds of these people, that, that these, these young lives that God has given us to protect. And filthy, unclean, and vile words blaring into our brains leads us to rejoicing in unrighteousness. These are important things. And then Paul begins to make the turn here that 
all these things that were negative. And then he says now that it not, doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices with the truth. So just as love doesn't tolerate what is wrong, it instead finds joy in what is right. It rejoices in the word of God. It applauds right doctrine and right application. It doesn't rejoice at sin, but it rejoices with those who do right. Love builds up and encourages others to follow the truth of God's word and live for him. So very practically, an illustration of this point is when our children follow God and obey and do what's right, we encourage them. We rejoice with them. Hey, that was great. That was exactly what God says we're to do. Reinforce those things. And then Paul, turned, we turn into verse 7. And Paul says that love bears all things. So in this verse, in verse 7, there are four um, qualities of love that Paul uses to close out all of these descriptors, okay? And so when Paul says here, all things in this verse, he says it four times, right? Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The all things here means all things that are acceptable to God's righteousness and to his will. And so first, what Paul says it does, it bears all things. Love protects. Love does not unnecessarily ridicule one for sin. But instead, it bears up against the sin of another, feeling their pain and their hurt, and seeks to restore them, not cast them out. And this is not excusing sin or the natural, normal consequences of sin, but realizing that wrongdoing does not place one outside the reach of God's love and usefulness. Love protects others from any further harms of sin. So again, very plain and simple, we don't have to unnecessarily spread other people's sin around. That's not what love does. We bear that sin. We help that person in love. Then Paul says, it believes all things. Do you find it easy in a, very sin, in a very sinful world to become very cynical? Even in the whole of Christianity, we observe wrongdoings time and again. I, um, my wife and I had this discussion the other day that there's someone who is very close to us um, that we learned this past week um, was, was involved in a very serious sin, is a spiritual leader involved in a spiritual sin. And I, I only say that to say that's a very, it's a very great opportunity whenever I hear of things like that to become very cynical, right? Like, well, man, I can't believe, you know. But love opts instead to view people in the most favorable light possible. Now, this is not turning a blind eye to what is wrong and what is right. But it is being willing to exercise trust and confidence, though it has been pushed against. So are we willing to take people at their word, to give them the benefit of the doubt? I mean, this should be true most of all of those we've made a lifelong commitment to, right? I mean, that spouse that we've said till death to us part, or those kids that we have brought into this world, we should be willing to, to give our trust. Now, this is not a license to presume on that trust, by the way. That trust is, is, is so, is sometimes very easily given, but then very easily broken, and it's very hard to gain it back, right? 
But if our lives and if our lives don't bear the fruit of God's love, what are we to expect? But yet in love, we should be willing to rebuild those opportunities with people and give them that trust. Paul then says, it hopes all things. Sometimes the belief that we have in others in love is completely shattered to pieces. Our trust is broken. The goodness we hope to see and we believe that we would see in godliness is disappointingly lost. But godly love refuses to let that be the end of the story. It hopes what? In whom? It hopes in God. Knowing that he is the one who can restore these things. It welcomes reconciliation and opens the door of rebuilding trust. And then lastly, Paul says that godly love endures all things. I'm just going to tell you this, that if you love with a godly love, your love's going to take a beating. The sinful world we live in is going to crash up against it. Our spouses will test and try our love. Our children will act in unloving manners. But no matter what, biblical love endures. Why? Well, again, look to God. His love endures to us. And so should our love endure for others. And this is the ultimate of God's love that it continues to endure. So why then, how then can this type of love continue to endure all things in our lives? Because it doesn't come from in here, it comes from God. And if it doesn't come from God, it's not going to last, right? If our love is just based on our feelings, or, or this, or that, or even some rational thing that we could come up with, it only lasts for as long as we want to make it last. It has to come from God. Godly self-sacrificial love shines like a multifaceted jewel, filling our homes and lives with the reflection of our Savior. So the word love is not just a part of a phrase. It's an action empowered by the Lord and proven in the way we live. God's love is the power by which we have been saved and the power by which we live for the Lord in our relationships to others. So our homes should be filled with the love of God as believers. Everything we think, say, and do must be filtered through God's definition of love. If you want to have a home that reflects God, you must be someone consumed by the love of God that we've seen in this passage here tonight. So we've, we've talked about this series on the home. We called it Bless This Home, right? Hey, bless this home isn't a nice little phrase crocheted on a pillow, Okay. It's a consuming mindset and an ongoing pursuit. It means we must be willing to obey God in all things. Seeking his will and holding nothing back from him. Only through obedience can we enjoy God's blessings on our lives and in our homes. So whether you live alone, whether you're seeking to influence and impact another person, the next generation, as a, or maybe as a grandparent, or you live with your spouse, or you have children in your home, Your home life as a Christian is expected to reflect Jesus Christ. And I would just say, if 
if you need help, don't be afraid to seek that help, to find that help so that you can live a life and your home can be a way that reflects Jesus Christ. And if you need to sit down and reevaluate some things in your life, it's worth it because nothing is better than living a life of obedience to God. And we pray that God would give us a love for him and a love that, that his love then would reflect out of us into the lives of others in our own homes and into our dark world that we can show them who he is. Father, thank you for this evening that you have given us to be here to study your word. Thank you for the times that we've had to look at our home lives through the lens of the gospel. And we ask that you would help us to evaluate our own lives, then our relationships with our spouses, with our children, with our parents, with our siblings, with others, that we would have homes that are full of your blessing, not because, um, because we've made it so or we've made these good choices, but because we've been obedient to you and therefore we've seen you do great and mighty things. Help us tonight to be burdened about what love looks like. Help us to cultivate godly love. Help us to see the practical ramifications of it come out in our everyday lives, in our words towards others, in our actions. May we be overwhelmed with the love that you have shown us we may show it to other people. Be with us now as we go home in a few minutes. Watch over and protect us. Give us a good week serving you wherever that may be. In your name we pray. Amen.